Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The Gospel we just heard, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and his 40-day fast, are obviously the primary theme and example for our own observance of Lent. Both Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before encountering God on a mountain, Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. And these were both prefigurings of Jesus' own 40-day fast in the wilderness and on a mountain. Tradition has actually identified this mountain, naming it Mount Quarantine, seriously, uh, and even has identified a small cave or grotto at the top of which Jesus took shelter. But whereas Moses and Elijah had fasted and met God for the purposes of being sent to minister to the people in their own contexts, Moses delivering the law and Elijah prophesying to a wayward people to remind them of the law, Jesus' preparation for his three-year ministry was to proclaim the arrival of a new law, a new covenant. And the temptations he would face are recapitulated, all of the temptations that humans had faced since Adam, in order to defeat them and demonstrate in his own flesh the way for all human flesh to triumph over these temptations. The first temptation was to the flesh. It involved food, appetite, but that was only the surface of the temptation. There's nothing wrong with food, of course, or of appetites. They're natural. We all have them. We were created with them. But the natural good, which is food, bread, can sometimes and ought to be subjected under the greater good of the virtues, specifically the virtues of self-control and obedience. Adam, our first father, was not able to keep the fast which was imposed on him. He was asked to abstain, and he did not. He was disobedient. The fathers of the church are clear that there is nothing wrong with the fruit that he and his wife ate. They were correct when they saw that it was good for eating. But it was not a good that was yet open to them. And their disobedience, not the fruit itself, is what harmed them. So it was out of obedience, not anything wrong with bread as such, that Jesus refused. It also didn't help that Satan, uh, it didn't help Satan, his, his own case, that he suggested turning stones into bread, which would have been a very unnatural thing to do. Jesus, as we see later in his ministry, is actually fond of working miracles out of bread, but it's always in a multiplicative manner, taking what is already bread and multiplying or miraculously imbuing it as with the Eucharist. Satan doesn't understand the divine style the creative principle which undergirds the cosmos. There are divine miracles, and then there's just arbitrary magic. The devil doesn't seem to get the difference. And this is part of why regular scripture reading and participation in the services and the sacraments of the church are so important, because they teach us the divine style so that we can, as St. Paul says, discern the spirits. The next temptation is to pride and vanity. Satan suggests proving a prophecy which he knew to apply to Jesus. He quotes a verse from Psalm 91. He shall give his angels charge over thee. They shall bear thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
The idea was that the one to whom this prophecy applied would be guarded in all things and would have an army of angels looking out for him at all times. He couldn't be hurt. How cool is that? So give it a shot, the devil suggests. Jump off this tower and prove it. But this wasn't just an adolescent male thrill-seeking temptation. The key to this attack from Satan lies in the beginning of what he says. If you are the son of God, prove that this prophecy applies to you. If you are really the one to whom this applies, show it. The goal is to spark a self-defense, a desire to prove oneself. This human desire, prideful desire, is in every one of us. If you're so good at your job, if you're such a good person, if you've really earned this paycheck, this car, this lifestyle, if you're really worthy, the temptation to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, to defend ourselves to others always leads to boasting, to puffing ourselves up, to conflict with others, to conflict with God. It's humility, self-deprecation, real self-sacrifice that helps us fight this temptation. Jesus replies to Satan's scriptural quotation with another one, you shall not test God. He doesn't defend himself or his identity or his purpose or his mission. He leaves the suggestion that maybe he's not who he says he is out there in the open. He doesn't even address it. But by not addressing it or entertaining it, he leaves it for his father to deal with. He doesn't have to justify himself. His father will do that when he raises him from the dead. Also a further note about this, once again, Satan doesn't seem to get the divine style. Tempting Jesus with a suggestion about not being uh, injured by a stone when Jesus literally just a few minutes ago was not injured by a stone, meaning the devil's temptation about turning stones into bread didn't harm him. He didn't dash his foot against that stone. He managed to uh, overcome that temptation. And yet the devil, blind to this reality, once again quotes something about him not being injured by a stone. The final temptation that the devil tries is power. The deceiver unmasks himself with this one, and he asks for direct worship from Jesus. Imagining that all the kingdoms of the earth are his to control, he gives Jesus an opportunity for a warped shortcut to his final destiny, to have every knee bow to him and every tongue confess allegiance to him. All the world can be yours right now if you just acknowledge me to be on equal ground with God, Satan says. And just because we've never been offered the whole world on a platter, we might think that this temptation isn't really in the same vein as any of the temptations we face. It's not very analogous to stuff that's uh, uh, you know, a, a problem that we have to face on a daily basis. But this temptation, power, actually is something that we face constantly. We might not put it in those terms. We not, not, might not think I'm being tempted with power right now. But this temptation comes in many forms. Often, in our case, it comes in the form of ill-gotten or ill-used resources. Money, stuff, toys, clothes, assets, authority. These are all forms of power that we're tempted with on a daily basis. 
This is a this is a monetary thing as much as it is anything else. Monetary temptation. The renunciation of stuff, therefore, in this fast during Lent. The intentional giving away of our time and our money is the way to reprioritize our values so that we're not dependent on things, clothes, status, authority. Jesus once again dismisses Satan with a scripture verse. Worship God only, and you, devil, are not God. So after failing to trip Jesus with these temptations to appetite, pride, and power, Satan was defeated and removed. And immediately Jesus was attended to by angels, fulfilling that verse that Satan tried to use against him from Psalm 91. I will give my angels charge over thee, and they shall attend to you and bear you up so that you don't harm your foot against the stone. This verse is further mockingly used against Satan and to the glory of God and to our own instruction in the Mass today. We read for you our gradual, you know, the proper chant that we uh, sing as the gospel is being processed out. The gradual would be this. He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee in their hands that thou hurt not thy foot against a stone. We sing that verse as the gospel is processed out to hear in the gospel reading, then Satan used that exact verse to try to trip Jesus up. I love the reclaiming of this. First of all, it's scripture. Satan tries to reclaim it as his own, as a way to, to trip up Jesus. And then we reclaim it back for scripture as a mocking to Satan. Didn't work, Satan. And now we're singing it in triumph. It's an interesting verse, this. It's in the middle of Psalm 91, which actually, if we then continued on with the Mass, the tract is the entirety of Psalm 91. The whole psalm we would sing. It is the first Sunday of Lent afterwards. We sing longer things uh, during Lent. But that verse in particular, it comes up again and again and again. It's repeated over and over throughout the season of Lent, specifically in the Office of Vespers. And angels shall come and minister to you, protecting you, bearing you up. And that's exactly what happens at the end of Jesus' 40-day and 40-night fast when the, the reward is earned, the comfort, the, the relief. What happens at the end of Jesus? Angels come and minister to him, to strengthen him, to prepare him, to help him. We should expect nothing less for us who imitate Jesus' fast with this 40-day fast of ours, what are we expecting when we get to the end of it? We ought to be expecting angels to come and minister to us, to bear us up, to strengthen us. Now, if that sounds like a, uh, a, a nice sentimental prospect, oh, that's, uh, angels are going to come and help us out. That's great. Then maybe we don't know what we're expecting if that were to happen. Last night, we had a, uh, a class that was a, uh, uh, an introduction to, to orthodoxy. It, we had, I think, a total of four visitors, non-members, four, four different people who actually came, um, which was pretty good. And as we're wrapping up, uh, we were you know, closing, closing up. Everyone had left except uh, just a handful of us. 
and I had heard because we had the little chime thing on everyone leave. I had taken account in my mind of who was there, who had left and who was still there. And then I could have sworn I heard a, uh, the sound of footsteps walking up here. So I came up to check. Maybe it was somebody who was uh, here earlier and hadn't left. And uh, there's, nobody, there's nobody up here. So I, I walked up and down the aisles, didn't see anybody hiding under the pews, walked down that room, didn't see anybody, walked down that room, didn't see anybody. The door had not opened because there was no chime. There was nobody up here. But I know I heard, well, I thought I heard somebody walking around. I thought Dale heard that too. He could have sworn he did. I was like, well, if it's a ghost, it's a ghost who can uh, handle the presence of Christ in the Eucharist uh, present in, in the tabernacle. So I'm not too worried about that. You know, demons can be, uh, they can be dealt with too. That's, we're, not, we're not afraid of the devil as we see from the scripture reading today. And Dale casually said, well, I just hope it's not an angel. That would be really terrifying. I actually know a guy who says that he's seen an angel, but he refuses to tell me about it because he says it's the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to him. And I've, I've tried getting him to tell me what it was like, and he refuses. So I don't know. But given that everyone in the Gospels, when they first see an angel, the angel has to say, don't be afraid, uh, I think it's safe to assume the presence of an angel sparks fear, first and foremost. First thing you experience when you encounter an angel is just a sense of numinous dread. They are fearful creatures. Why are they so fearful? Well, it's because they're the servants of God. If you're going to stand in the presence of God and minister, you have to be pretty significant yourself spiritually. I mean, you've got to be able to bear the holiness of God. And so when you then take that holiness with you into uh, you know, a world full of carnal people and they experience that, it's terrifying. It's terrifying because we aren't ready for that kind of holiness. We're not ready for that level of power, strength, might. So they mediate their presence by remaining invisible for us most of the time. Or if they do have to show themselves, they um, quickly uh, reassure those to whom they appear and say, don't be afraid, we're on the same side. What I think is interesting is how often we don't think about angels, even though we're assured that they are in and amongst us all the time. In fact, we show up to church every Sunday and we pray this before the Mass. Every Mass, we either, uh, during Eastertide, pray the, the Vidi Aquam, but throughout the rest of the year, we pray the Asperges. Thou shalt purge me, O Lord. Father Michael comes and uh, asperges us all with the holy water. And then he prays this. Graciously hear us, O Lord, Heavenly Father, Almighty, Everlasting God, and vouchsafe to send thy holy angel from heaven to guard and cherish, to protect and visit, and to defend all who dwell in this thy holy habitation. Every Sunday, we pray that God send his holy angel to guard us in this church. This congregation has a guardian angel. It's the same guardian angel who we pray that God would vouchsafe to bless these ashes on Ash Wednesday. If you're here, you would hear Father Michael say, vouchsafe to send thy holy angel from heaven to bless and sanctify these ashes for us to use. 
in the Roman canon. We don't pray this in our Eucharistic canon, but other Western Rite Orthodox people do. In the Roman canon, at the altar, the priest prays, vouchsafe to send thy holy angel to bear these gifts of bread and wine up into the presence of God in his throne room in heaven. There are all kinds of situations in the life of the church where we ask God to vouchsafe to send thy holy angel from heaven to do this or to do that for us. It's this holy angel that is here assigned to protect, to guard, and guide us. It's the same thing that God did for the Hebrews as he was traveling with them throughout the desert. He assigned his angel to guard and protect them. There's actually a, there's an old baptismal rite in, um, I think it was Spain, that at the baptism, that same prayer is, it was used like you assigned an angel to guard your people in the desert, so assign an angel to guard this child as he is about to be baptized. We believe in guardian angels. Jesus mentions them in the gospel. We know that God sends his holy angels to guard, guide, and protect us. And we see this happening with Jesus at the end of his 40-day fast. And we know that throughout Lent, the same thing is happening for us, which is why we pray this uh, verse from Psalm 91 as the gradual today and over and over throughout Vespers during Lent. It's to remind us that we aren't alone in this journey. It's a terrifying journey, but the only thing more terrifying is facing an angel of God if we aren't worthy or prepared for it. So the fast is important to prepare us not just to be good people or live good lives, but to be able to bear the holy presence of holy things and creatures, the holy presence imbued on them because they are in the presence of God. If we ever have the fortune or misfortune of encountering an angel, I pray that the state of our heart at that moment may be such that the angel greets us with a do not be afraid rather than a, that's right, be afraid. I don't want to encounter an angel and feel that kind of fear. I want to encounter an angel and be reassured that we're on the same side and that my heart is on its way to being prepared to bear the holiness of God. That's what the season is for. I pray that we all keep that in mind as we continue our 40-day fast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.